0: The primary purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. The views, information, or opinions expressed by hosts or guests are their own. Neither the show nor any of its content should be construed as investment advice or as a recommendation to buy or sell any particular security. Security Security-specific information shared on this podcast should not be relied upon as a basis for your own investment decisions. Be sure to do your own research. The podcast hosts and participants may have a position in the securities mentioned personally through sub-accounts and or through separate funds and may change their holdings at any time. Well, thank you, everybody, for joining me today. We have a very, very special guest today. Roger Lowenstein is joining us. Uh, I've been a big fan of his books for a long time, and he and I have been uh, corresponding via email for for years now. and uh, we we wanted to time this with the release of his new book, Ways and Means. Lincoln and his cabinet and the financing of the Civil War. We're going to spend most of our time talking about that. But by way of introduction, for anyone who's not familiar with his work, uh, he was at the Wall Street Journal for over a decade and then uh, wrote a book that it was certainly an important one in my life, Buffett, The Making of an American Capitalist. And, and just as a quick digression, um, I was actually a business school student and I'd done a few years of banking and didn't know anything about anything and was kind of wandering in the forest, lonely and dark and clueless and uh, read that book one summer at a disastrous summer internship. And it, it literally was the cartoon light bulb going off. The scales fell from my eyes and I had instant clarity as to what I wanted to do the rest of my life. And I still think it's one of the best business books I've ever read uh, on any subject. And I still think it's one of the defining business biographies Uh in the whole subject. So Roger, thank you for, for doing that. I really appreciate that book. It's been fantastic for me. They were loved. Thanks, Phil. And then you've also written another all-time classic, When Genius Failed, The Rise and Fall of Long-Term Capital Management. And I believe this is now your seventh book, if I counted correctly. We have Origins of the Crash, The Great Bubble and Its Undoing in 2004, While America Aged, How Pension Debts Ruined GM, among other things, in 2008, The End of Wall Street in 2010, America's Bank, the Epic Struggle to Create the Fed in 2015 and now Ways and Means. So I guess I, I one of the questions I wanted to ask just quickly off the top is you wrote such an amazing biography, and then you wrote kind of a business biography with the Buffett and LTCM books, but then you've kind of launched into this arc as a very serious historian and taking on these big, wide-ranging projects. Was that by design or did you just kind of stumble into that by personal interest? Well,
1: it was by interest. I hope it wasn't a stumble, but um, I you know I always had an interest in history. If, if you even read the more contemporary books, say the Buffett book or the LTCM, they, I always um, tried to to cram as much history and, and uh, historical background is, as seemed to fit in those stories. And I always have a, have had an interest in in, in both history and journalism. Um, mm-hmm. So um, you know I I, um, I look for good stories where I can tell them.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, I have to ask too, I, I was doing some homework for this and I found an old interview with Charlie Rose, which I think was also from 1995. And it, it kind of made me wonder, was it easier to write that book with the amount of access you had compared to what Alice Schroeder got, what, about a decade and change, 12 years later? Or was it harder?
1: I presume she had a lot more access.
0: Um, Oh, she she did. Yeah, she had had, full access. I'll tell
1: you an interesting story. When I wrote the book, I had nothing to compare it by. You know, it was the only Buffett book, you know, full length out there when I did it. It was the only book I'd written anyway. And I asked Warren for cooperation. I didn't even think it would be an issue. I just told him that I had a contract and uh, I told him the circumstances under which I'd like to see him in his office, his home, on the road meetings and so on. And he wrote me back and said, um, no, thanks. You're on your own. I, I was just stunned. Um, but he, he said something else. He said, um, th- this will work better for me, given his schedule and his you know, what he wanted to do and didn't want to do. But he, he said it would also work better for you, uh, you, Roger, which gets to your question. And I really think it did, uh, because um, that's so much that I would have been, uh, might have been overwhelmed by whatever he told me but it uh, it freed me to write uh, my book on uh, Warren and not uh, Warren's book on Warren uh, so uh, for me anyway it, it, it worked out very well to have um, uh, to not make it authorized even though you know I had access to all kinds of uh, colleagues and friends of his obviously I had to get the information from someplace right uh, but but for me I think it Uh, as he actually suggested, it worked out very well.
0: Yeah, and one other tidbit from that interview, which I'd never heard before or realized, was that he did all of the post-writing or edit, when you were at the editing phase, correspondence through Charlie Munger, and Charlie sent you three factual uh, corrections, which you made, and then three non-factual requests, which you declined. Do you remember what those were?
1: Yeah, it wasn't so much editing, it was um, the option to... uh, You've touched an author's sensitivity, but but yeah. in return for permission to quote from his letters, his personal letters. Oh, I see. Uh, Charlie asked uh, if they could review um, the manuscript or read the manuscript with no um, with no rights, and and I said okay, sure. and he he, made, he immediately gave permission, and then it was just on me to to respond however I chose to to whatever um, uh, their comments were. Remember that one, I think this is going back, uh, the editing probably would have been in 94. So uh, you're talking 28 years, so don't hold me to any of this. But <laughs> sure. I think you remember that when they bought Coke, I had some way of comparing the value of Coke, the amount that they put into Coke to the um, the value of the corporation and I hyped it up a bit in Charlie's view that you know I said they were you know he was gambling whatever percent and he, he said if you really looked at it whatever they way that looked at it obviously it was a big bet but it wasn't it wasn't quite as much of a of a gamble as I'd suggested so I, I changed that. Hmm. Uh, the others uh, one was about a um, was a description of a um, of an intimate in. Warren's life. And that one I did not change. It was, just, it was just how I saw it. And Charlie said they'd rather not see that described that way. And I didn't change that. Hmm. Um, you know, I. I, I well, it's, None of these things were of great, you know, they weren't of
0: great consequence. A huge yeah. moment or. Um, Uh, So, um, just a fascinating footnote to a a fantastic book. Like I said, I I still give that book to anyone who comes to me and says, hey, you know, I'd love to learn about business or investing or what's this Warren Buffett fellow up to or anything like that. I I hand it out at the first chance I get. So, uh, if, if there's anyone out there, and I doubt there's a single listener of this podcast that hasn't read that book, but if by chance there's one, I would... Highly, highly recommended. So um, on that note, I'll I'll move on to uh, your new book, Ways and Means about the Civil War. And I have to admit, I mean, I I wasn't a history major. I I love history. I'm not a history buff, but this is, I've read several books about the Civil War. And in reading some of the reviews about this book from actual Civil War scholars, I think it's true that this is actually kind of a novel take on the Civil War. And in in having read the book, it's fascinating to me. So for anyone who's unfamiliar as I was, when, when the Civil War, when Lincoln was elected and when the Civil War began, we had no ability, the government of the United States had no ability to raise taxes, had no ability to borrow. There was no federal bank. It had been dismantled. There was no federal currency. It was required to deal in gold and silver. And uh, you know, paper money was referred to as a blasphemy at that time. There was no such thing as legal tender. There were just bank IOUs issued by dozens or hundreds of individual banks and, and merchants and private citizens could decide to accept them or not. So it, it's quite fascinating that, that that's where we started. And so I, I view this book kind of as the ultimate counterfactual. In other words, that without this financing of the Civil War, the South very well might have won. I mean, they've even said, you, you quoted a couple of people in the book as basically saying that they didn't lose the war on the battlefields, they lost the war in the Treasury. Is that, is that a fair takeaway from the book?
1: I I think that's um, I think it is a, a fair takeaway. You know, the, the South um, was uh, you know the, the, they were gutsy. They were um, they were willing to to you know, shed their blood, which they did in copious amounts um, on the battlefield. They certainly frustrated the North for well into the war. They 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 kept uh, surprising the North. They they made these incursions into Maryland and Pennsylvania, which Really scared the Jeepers out of the North, um, but um, as all that was happening, uh, the North was uh, innovating financially uh, and um, and economically and and socially thanks to Lincoln's um, agenda. I mean everything from the things you mentioned taxes, a currency, uh, a new banking system, to uh, things like a land grant college act. You know, sending it, uh, permitting everyone to go to college at a time, it was unheard of uh, to the Transcontinental Railroad. They were creating a modern state and and actually prospering. It's immigration was continuing. Immigrants were going out west and digging new mines. And Lincoln was tracking this stuff. He was insistent that the progress of the economy had to go forward, even as the war was being fought. In the meantime, the South, as it was uh, hanging on by its fingernails militarily and winning its share of the battles. It was disintegrating. Uh, you know, I was just looking, rereading some of the figures today. A barrel of flour cost uh, $5.50 when the war broke out. Two years later, in 1863, it cost $38. Uh, and by the final months of the war, it cost $1,000. Um, that's pretty vicious inflation. Uh, there were um, uh, By the end of the war, they weren't printing notes on uh, normal... Uh, monetary paper anymore they were printing it on the reverse side of wallpaper they printed so many notes that run out of paper uh, there were uh, the richmond papers talked of seeing as a common sight uh, black slaves uh, toting wheelbarrows full of notes fresh from the stamping press it was it, it became their uh, their leading industry they had no they were willing to tax unlike the north I, I think there's a lesson for today you know we've, we've heard so much about uh, modern uh, monetary badness uh, or whatever it's uh, called. But um, we obviously have a real inflation issue today. Uh, the monetary side is important. The fiscal side is also important. You can't just spend forever without taxing. And they realized that in the North. Although, uh, uh, and they, they invented all the taxes. We'd never had an income tax before. Uh, we we'd never had any kind of internal taxes. It was all on, on the tariff. And they created um, the forerunner, the IRS, it still exists, called the Internal Revenue Bureau back then, and a quite involved taxing system. And the South, although they were willing to die for the cause, they weren't willing to be taxed. And their economy just imploded.
0: It, yeah, exactly. I mean, I, one chart that you put right at the front of the book was about $1 worth of gold and Confederate notes over time. And when in May of 1861, starting at a dollar, by April of 1865, it was a hundred dollars. To, to hammer home again, the hyperinflation that took place over that era, which is just astounding. But you know, you at least in my reading, it wasn't quite clear as to how much you attribute that hyperinflation and the printing and printing and printing to a total and utter lack of discipline, which which seemed to be at least the, the crux of your your. Allegation, but also was, was there just kind of a structural inability for the South to actually impose much in the way of taxes given the structure of the economy and, and the aristocracy well, of planters and so,
1: certainly in part. The uh if you want a tax, you want liquid wealth because those are the things that can be you know turned into, into dollars or, or, or whatever the currency is that the central government can use to ship to England to buy arms and you know the things they needed. Uh, and the north had you know, far more factories uh, more more banks and more solvent banks you know, anything you think of they had more uh, more commerce more merchants so the south had cities too but anything you think of in terms of liquid wealth which is which are more easily taxed the north had the south had wealth uh, but um, the, the, you know, the lion's share of its wealth was in land and slaves now um, you know they 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 could have taxed this whole thing was set up for the wealthy planters. They, they seceded because um, uh, the planters were felt threatened. They felt that slavery was threatened. Only a, a, a quarter of the southern population had slaves, and the, the whole thing, the Confederacy, was in their interest. But they were unwilling to be taxed. They, they were willing to have land and slaves uh, taxed. They basically were unwilling to, to pay any sort of tax. Willie Sutton said, "You know, where you rob money, you, you go where it is to the banks." Well, if they were going to tax, it was going to be the planters, and um, they could have sold off their slaves. They could have sold off land. It would have been hard. The market for slaves wasn't very good once the war started. So it was partly structural, but it was partly just um, a an ideological aversion to taxes and particularly the federal taxes, and an unwillingness uh, uh, to pay up.
0: Yeah, interesting. Also,
1: also, I'll add there was a delusion. We're living through, um, uh, I think, you know, a war brought on in part by the delusion of a, uh, uh, of an autocrat, Vladimir Putin, who thought that, um, uh, his control over energy would allow him to in fact walk over the NATO powers or not face any resistance from them. Uh, the South, the South had that same sort of delusion. They were, uh, they went around before the war saying cotton is king, as a verbatim quote, no, hand, no no one dares lay a hand on us. They thought that they produced three quarters of the world's cotton. Cotton was the energy of the 19th century. It was the engine of the industrial revolution. A million people or so depended on, on cotton for their employment in the mill towns of New England and also of Lancashire and also of, in the mill districts of France. And they really thought that this granted them the immunity, uh, and and this this kind of delusional thinking uh, ultimately trapped them in a war that that they had no business of being.
0: Yeah, I, I'm glad you brought that up because you wrote an essay about that on your Substack, which I, of course, would recommend everyone look up and subscribe to about the parallels between cotton in the South during the Civil War and and oil and the conflict in Russia today. Um, but you know, so the inflation. Issue we've kind of covered, and and you warned pretty clearly that you know that was, you know, there are parallels and lessons to be learned there today. But another big theme of the book is that you know, this was a fight about the definition of money, and it was quite fascinating to read the debates and the pushback that various people had about the concept of issuing legal tender out of the United States and out of the United States central government. And the pushback on moral terms, that it was some sort of moral issue, moral failing, that it was just beyond the imagination. And and you you wrote several times that it was basically a fight about the definition of money. And so the modern parallel there that jumped out to me was about, you know, some of the stuff we're seeing today in crypto and cryptocurrencies that are being traded. And I I keep coming back over and over again that a monetary union as the glue of the United States in the civil war and and really ever since is still a key issue. But, you know, you it was beyond the scope of the book, but I'm wondering what your thoughts are about sure, crypto as sure. a
1: parallel. So the, the moral issue uh, at the end of the first year, the, five, the, the during the first year, 1861, the Union relied on uh, uh, borrowing the bank, the private banks' gold. The banks didn't want to give up their gold, lend it. They wanted to lend paper, but uh, but Salmon Chase, the Treasury Secretary, didn't. He was a, a Jacksonian. He was a stickler for for coin, and. Uh, after they let, just as a side, they lent the first um, 50 million, they had a celebratory dinner. And at the dinner, the lead banker said, Mr. Secretary, you got your 50 million. Uh, we think that should quite suffice to fight the war. Well, he ended up sub- spending it 60 times over. And needless to say, the, the banks, uh, uh, they couldn't fight the war on gold anymore because was, that, that basically exhausted the banks so in the beginning of 1862, the union was facing bankruptcy. They didn't have anything to pay the troops with or their contractors. And um, a congressman proposed legal tender, which would be paper uh, that would have the uh, legal status of money. Now, there were there were notes circulating, hundreds and hundreds, of you, as you move through private banks, circulated IOUs. And in a free market, people could take them or not. And what tended to happen was the the notes of the uh, best finance eastern banks—New York, Philly, Boston—were, uh, you know, valued close to par. And the further you got from them, the dicier they got. And as you traveled out of state, you had to take a haircut. That was—that was the financial system or non-system. But these notes were going to be different. They were be legal tender, worth par. And there was was quite a profound debate in the Congress, even among Republicans, who basically supported the the uh, Lincoln agenda many of them were were really uh, viscerally and morally opposed to calling as one said I, I actually the, the Samuel Fessenden the chair of the Senate Finance Committee the most powerful man, financial uh, legislator in the Congress said uh, I oppose making anything other than gold or silver a, a legal tender uh, others said it, it it shocked all their notions the idea that you could um that people who had borrowed in gold would be able to pay it back in paper it seemed to me, it seemed to them to be a perversion. And they also um, worried greatly that foreign nations would um, downgrade us in their estimation and, of course, in their trade, that, that, you know, uh, that precious metals were the international standard. In fact, uh, one banker who later became Treasury Secretary said that uh, uh, God Almighty had put gold and silver in the earth to give. Of human beings a standard of value so this was this is something they took very seriously and i i think at least the north and it's to their credit because although they did put out this money and it was it was quite successful people accepted it they had to accept it but they they really liked it and they called them lincoln dollars um as a a term of affection uh, but they were careful to limit the amount of um Of uh, greenbacks of of this paper, and then the way they were able to do it was because they relied uh, on on taxes for much more, and that made up much more of their revenue. Uh, and And the taxes enabled them to borrow even more, because uh, obviously a government with tax revenue has more credibility and therefore credit than a government with no revenue. You asked about um, about crypto. Um, You know, I think the the big difference uh, between crypto and even the, um, you know, greenbacks that the union put out, uh, or the, or the dollars that we put out today, which are essentially the same, is, um, the dollars are backed by tax revenue. So, uh, regardless of what you call the currency or how it's denominated, the productive power of the United States stands behind the issuer of those notes. Uh, and that's pretty considerable. I don't see anything behind the um, uh, behind the issuance of uh, of crypto. You know, there's no there's no productive power at all. It's just, as far as I can see, uh, a game of uh, a greater fool. Uh, you know, what it, it's 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 not even uh, like valuing art, which you know I enjoy looking at. Um, how much time can you spend um, uh, looking at electrons or something or whatever it is behind? Uh, Crypto. So I just don't understand uh, crypto. Right. And, I, and I refer you for for more pungent comments to uh, Charlie Munger, who you referred to. Yeah, I'm sure
0: we've, we've heard and seen a lot of those over the last couple of years, but I wanted to go well, back you to- know,
1: I, I do think, Phil, on the on the crypto, that it should be a reminder to those at the Federal Reserve, uh, currencies come and go, currency systems come and go. And there's obviously a threat to the credibility of national currencies now, and I think it it particularly behooves them to um, take their role as stewards of the currency i e stewards of the value of the currency very seriously uh, you know if, if we got into a 1970 situation where where the currency was inflating thirteen or fifteen percent every year uh, you might um you, know, you might see a real runaway from the dollar and uh, particularly with these with the
0: supposed alternatives out there. So uh, I take that- No, I I agree with that part. Yeah, it's a good segue too, because I was going to ask you, you mentioned the reasonable limits, which was a a key part of the book where the the government actually self-limited themselves in the issuance of the greenbacks to one sixth of the total war debt. And that actually proved to be a boon to America's credit and and kind of the exercise of nation making, as you called it, that was Lincoln's ultimate purpose. And so they were able to show this self-discipline And then a related thought that I thought was really powerful was that you mentioned or you wrote that finance is always the act of planning for the worst. And so along those two lines, have reasonable limits and the act of planning for the worst in the financial sense, have have those ideas been lost recently, both in in society and in the government in particular in the US?
1: Well, I I think somewhat, you know, I mean, thankfully or, or not. The worst tends to roll around sooner than we expect, so, so people get religion again. Um, I uh, I guess the Fed is beating more or less right now as we speak. Uh, it'll be interesting to see w- what they do. But uh, there was a long period over the last year where it seemed to me that with rates at 0%, uh, the risk uh, that rates would be uh, too low and too stimulative was... Um, far, far, far greater than the risk that they would be too high, that the policy uh, would be uh, uh, too contractionary. Um, So I I think the Fed got um, a little too optimistic um, and a little too optimistic about um, this idea that the inflation, as it it developed and continued and persisted, was going to be transitory. Um, You know, that. People always, um, people tend to await for normal to come back, but after some big event, normal's really the same. Uh, the world wasn't the same after September 11th. It's not going to be the same after the, the Putin war on Ukraine, however it ends. And um, you know, after having had a, a period of um, massive stipulation, which I think was necessary at the onset of, of COVID, and, and massive federal spending, it's just unlikely that the world was going to go back to exactly where it was, whatever happened to supply chain uh, bottlenecks. So once the immediate economic need passed uh, and the economy began to return, which it did quite quickly after you know several months in, in the pandemic. Th- this I made the point before this is not a primarily a financial crash in origins or in character, the way the, the 2008 mortgage crash was. That was you had millions of Americans deep in debt. They weren't going to be spending for a long, long time. They were going to be trying to dig their way out of being overborrowed. So in financial terms, you needed some sort of stimulus for, for quite a while. At least we weren't going to overheat for a long time. In fact, we really never did. But but this time was different. Th- th- this time, meaning the, the, the COVID-caused uh, uh, financial uh, episode, it was caused by a bug, by a virus. It wasn't It wasn't economic or financial in origin. So once we got, we figured out a way to get people back at work, uh, which we did pretty quickly, uh, and, and the stimulus checks were absolutely needed in that interim, but once that period passed, uh, I'm surprised that the Fed um, didn't, Uh, start to get back towards normal, uh, more, normal interest rate.
0: And and do you think this period overall, this is a bit of a digression, but you, you wrote or or said in a related interview about origins of the crash that the wrongdoing of the 1990s was greater than that of the 1920s. They both had a love affair with stocks and a lot of speculation and, uh, total embrace of new tech to new technology a lot of which proved useful but it was just way way overdone and it ultimately ended up in a rejection of kind of the earlier progressive and, and liberal schemes do you, do you think that is true I mean as I look at the last call it two years some of the speculations and frenzied behavior we've seen in markets are hard to reconcile with any other prior period well the, the
1: um, you know there's nothing wrong with speculation uh, uh, you know I Somebody once said, might have been my my father, that if there was no speculation, there wouldn't have been any railroads. Um, the, the the That's not to say that the government should encourage it or reward it, but it, it's it's a human, uh, it, you know, close to the human spirit. The wrongdoing I was referring to in that book about 2000, in the early 2000s, if I remember correctly, was um, the criminal wrongdoing were the um, the games and worse that companies like Enron and MCI WorldCom, and although they didn't get indicted, Lucent and Xerox and Rite Aid and, um, you know, and quite a few more were playing, uh, you know, under the tutelage of you know, the also unindicted uh, managers at places like, like General Electric, where, where so-called managing your earnings became, uh, you know, actually admired and, um, uh, a terrible phrase, managing your earnings. How about just reporting your earnings? The uh, you know none other than George Bush, the president, said that you know, finally had to say the the, the business pages of the American newspaper shouldn't look like a scandal sheet, which is exactly what they'd become. And I think that you know, to me that era should be most. I, I guess because the dot com bubble has become you know synonymous with the bubble of our age, and and it's sort of the tulip bubble of our time, and Companies like Pets.com, you know, are are fun to remember and talk about. Uh, We've lost sight of um, absolutely how irresponsible uh, corporate America and their accountants, remember Arthur Anderson, uh, and many of their lawyers uh, and and other hand holders and enablers were And that's the wrongdoing I was referring to. Uh, You've had some of that uh, this time around. Um, obviously you had Theranos, you know, which was a criminal enterprise. But um, I don't think you've had it in the same uh, degree by any, uh, by any means. I, I think part of the reason, you know, we uh, we passed a very good reform. It's, it's not always spoken of so highly, but the Sarbanes-Oxley law was very good and it, you know, it had a clause that every CEO and CFO is to sign off on the accuracy of the financial statements. And I think I think uh, since then, uh, CEOs have been um, you know, less likely to play games with the numbers overtly, and and uh, you know in ways that would that would land them at the big house. I think that's going to change for the better.
0: Interesting. And and speaking of of playing games and and dealing with authority, another thing going back to the ways and means book is it 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 strikes me that. Our, our agrarian roots are probably responsible for a lot of this, but America's distrust of centralized power and distrust of big government goes back right to the founding, right? And it, it was a key part of the South's you know, attitude and, and then financing or failure to finance itself during the Civil War. It, it, do you agree with that, Reed? And, and what does that imply for the fights that we're having today about how to handle ourselves in Washington?
1: A- absolutely. If you talk to... Um say Europeans, uh, you know, they're astonished that we don't have um, uh, a national health care. It's not even a, it's not even controversial to them. Everyone needs health care. You don't need 50 systems or we have 50 systems of state and corporation. And, um, and this goes back to um, actually the Revolutionary War. Uh, and, and uh, you know, our, um, you know, we, we gained our political independence by fighting, rebelling against the central power, the English king and the, the original political framework uh, was designed to avoid anything central. The Ark of the Confederation, uh, when they first, um, during the Civil War, when they realized they needed a real tax base and proposed a real tax system with bite, some of them wanted to uh, leave collection to the states, which, by the way, the individual states, which is what the South did, and none of them collectively, the meager taxes that they had. But uh, Thaddeus Stevens, Uh, who was a very cutting and sarcastic and rather brilliant uh, representative, uh, pointed out that, as he said, it was because of this original defect, the lack of a central taxing power, that the uh, Articles of Confederation were ditched and the Constitution was framed, the Constitution that they were then fighting to defend. He said, we we need a... uh, Because at that time, the federal government was at the mercy financially of the states. He said, we need a... uh, a federal taxing power, but it's it's continued to be um, part of the political culture of the United States. The, the tension between um, uh, the interior, uh, the mid country, uh, the South, the Southwest, and the West, and the East Coast, where the, the universities and the elites and the financial elites are based, you know, that's just uh, a part of the um, political uh, culture of the country. You mentioned farming, and um, I, I just, it just reminds me of one of the early bills they passed. It was really um, a standout because Lincoln created the Department of Agriculture, which you know, may sound like a, just a sort of bureaucracy and not very interesting, but uh, it was the first department that dealt specifically uh, with um, the private sector. That dealt, of course, with the largest uh, sector of the economy, you know, agriculture. Lincoln was very excited about it because he knew, um, and then the department was formed with very modest goals to spread seeds and farming know-how to farmers. Lincoln was very excited because being a a Westerner, he knew how difficult it was to farm on the frontier. He knew that the farmers out there were uh, uh, greater distances between each other. They didn't have access to farming materials and seeds and know-how. Uh, They were just space further apart than uh, farmers in New England or Pennsylvania or or New York. Um, He called it the the People's Department because he thought it would be a department that would um, interact with individual farmers and um, do what he thought the purpose of government was, which was to promote opportunity uh, within the private sector. What's so interesting about it is that Jefferson Davis also had an opinion on the Department of Agriculture. Jefferson Davis, of course, the the president of the Confederacy. Uh, Davis uh, was also born in Kentucky, about 100 miles from where Lincoln was born, uh, just a year earlier, also in a log cabin. But his family moved down south. Uh, They became wealthy planters. And uh, Davis then uh, uh, went into the U.S. Senate. Uh, His brother, by the way, started him out in uh, farming by giving him a cotton plantation. But when the idea of a uh, Department of Agriculture first began to kick around in the late 1850s, shortly before the war, uh, Davis, as senator from Mississippi, uh, helped to squelch it. And what he said was, agriculture needs no teaching by Congress. Well, that was true if your brother had given you a free cotton plantation. And uh, that was the idea of the South. Uh, They didn't want any sort of government that, um, uh, that they, the wealthy planters, didn't need. Uh, it, it, partly because they didn't want a federal government that would um, perhaps gain the power to emancipate the slaves, but also very much because they're afraid of raising the expectations of the poor whites who were the majority. there was a governor of Virginia there uh, way before the Civil War who said, I thank God we don't have free public schools in Virginia. And I pray that we shall not for a hundred years this was a very different philosophy, just a counter opposite philosophy from that of someone like Lincoln who went into politics in 1832 when he was 23 years old with the idea that it could help us, he put it, every man to get the
0: chance. Well, I know we're, we're bumping up against the time limit here shortly. So maybe that's a good last question for me to close with then is where do you shake out on the great man theory of history, as it were? Would you agree that with no Lincoln the North doesn't win the the Civil War, and is an important derivative related to your book. With no Lincoln, you don't get Chase, who you seem to think was very uniquely suited to be Secretary of the Treasury during this period. And potentially, without him, there's no Union victory in the Civil War as well.
1: Yeah, I um, you know, hard to, to do the counterfactuals, but um, Chase was a great secretary, and Lincoln was um, not only a great president; he was just a great man. That it was such a blessing to have him. At a time of that kind of crisis, I'll just share with you one anecdote from, from way before the war. He, he served one term in Congress, his only time in the national stage uh, before he became president. In 1947, uh, he was a, a not important legislator in the Congress, representing, of course, Illinois. And he proposed an infrastructure bill. Infrastructure was very important to Lincoln roads, canals, later railroads. And uh, this is a bill for, for, this was that type of bill. A Democrat on the other side simply exoriated it. He, he cut it up. This is the worst bill ever. Uh, how dare you know, Lincoln propose it and so on and so on. And when he was finished, um, Lincoln didn't defend the bill or himself. He just said uh, so modestly, he said, uh, most things, especially of government policy, aren't all good or all evil. Most are a compound of good and evil. We're just looking for things with more good in them than evil. Uh, you know, that, that type of humility and uh, stoicism and patience and wisdom uh, doesn't come around uh, very often. We were, we were lucky to have them then.
0: Sure. Well, Listen, Roger, I want to thank you for coming on and and sharing your time with us here. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time. And full disclosure, uh, I'm just an unabashed fan of your work. I bought this book with my own money. I've spent hundreds (laughs) of dollars buying your books for for anyone that would would take the time to read them. So congratulations again on this, and thank you for joining us. Phil, it's been
1: a pleasure talking to you
0: as always. Thanks again. Take care.